My name's Joel, and we have teaching from the Bible uh, at Emmanuel every Sunday. We're in the book of Matthew, which is easy to find if you're new to your Bible. It's the first book of the New Testament, and we're in Matthew chapter 4. We're just going to be going through Matthew quite a lot for a, a large chunk of this year. And uh, we're in chapter 4, first few verses. Um, I've been away for a couple of weeks, so it's nice to be back. I was in London a couple of weeks ago at Emmanuel Church London, and then in Amsterdam uh, last Sunday. Just loved being with the, the church uh, there that Matt and Joe Simmons started only a few short years ago and uh, already gathering a couple of hundred people there in the middle of the city. It's such a privilege, such an encouragement, such a whirlwind of adventure they are on. You would be proud of them. Uh, we love church planting. We love starting churches in, in, in fantastic cities um, and seeing what God does. Uh, it's just a joy to be involved with and I'm so grateful. But it's good to be back here and good to be seeing what's going on. I loved hearing Meredith talk about the women's event coming up. I hope that you are booking into it, uh, you ladies, especially given the fact that she introduced it uh, so well. She said, uh, uh, come on the Friday night for cocktails before it all kicks off, <laughs> which kind of, you know, for, that certainly appeals to some people on some level. It's a bit like, have you ever seen the film Fight Club? It's a bit like... <laughs> No one talks about Women's Day. It's like the, kind of the new rule. Um, maybe they'll just take off in a new kind of underground kind of way. Um, but uh, no, in all, in all uh, seriousness, that is going to be a superb day. I've, I've been really excited looking at the material that's going to be got, gone through, the people that are speaking. It's going to be really a rich day of blessing. So please don't miss out for it. Uh, it's going to be good. Right, so Matthew chapter 4, we're going to take up uh, the chapter from the beginning and read till verse 11. This is picking up on the story of Jesus in his time of temptation and trial. Uh, you and I, each of us, have similar times in our life where we are tempted uh, to compromise on our life journey. There are things that you want to do with your life. There are things that you may be destined to do, things that are important and special, and yet you will constantly face distraction. You'll constantly face frustrating delay. You'll face disappointment and a lot of other things, beginning with D. You'll, 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 you'll face a lot of reasons to quit, a lot of reasons to stop, reasons to give up. Jesus faced them himself in a, an intense way. And so what we have here in this short story is a masterclass in how to handle temptation and trial. And uh, we're going to read it together. It's going to come up on the screen and we're going to have the, uh, the video playing to give us the reading. So let's watch it now. This is a reading taken from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, 
and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's just pray right now. Father, we're grateful to you for your kindness in giving us these words of scripture to teach us, to lead us in the right paths. But we, we pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, so that what might otherwise just be uh, impartation of info will in fact be an impartation of life. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and you'd bring transformation as we learn more than ever to trust you, seeing your great goodness revealed through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And Lord, that from this point we would go forward as, Lord, those who've learned to trust you, learned confidence in you, and are stronger and more ready for the road, more ready for the journey than we've ever been because of your powerful work this evening. We ask for it in Jesus' name for every one of us. Why don't you just in your own heart right now, you may have never done this before. Perhaps you're here as a guest and you're thinking, not even sure if I believe. Well, just in your heart say, God, if you're there, speak to me. Speak to me. And, and why don't we all do that? Just say, God, please speak to me in this time we have. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're talking here about this personality called the tempter uh, or the devil or Satan. He has a few different names in the Bible. We sometimes find it a little hard to take him seriously because we've kind of endured a lot of kind of cartoon versions of him through our childhood, things that make him look less serious. Uh, but the, the reality is he is serious. And in fact, it's, it's irrational to dismiss him. Many would say, well, I can believe in God, but I don't believe in the devil, that just sounds childish. Well, maybe there are versions of the devil in our head that are childish, but it's, it's surely reasonable to believe that if there can be a supernatural good being, then there may just as easily be a supernatural evil being. It, it doesn't make sense to assume that one might exist and the other can't. So we don't have any reasonable grounds to simply dismiss him. We, we need instead to, to take it more seriously when we see actually this Jesus, this person who is the main uh, kind of hero, the main personality of the whole Bible, having this dramatic confrontation with him right here, this kind of showdown with him in the story. But the, 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 the fact is that right up until this point in the story, the devil has held sway over human history. If you, if you look at how the devil is presented in the Bible, he, the, the reality is he, he has been very successful when it comes to human affairs. He's managed, to, he's managed to tempt and destroy humanity in general. He's managed to tempt to the point of ruin everybody from the very beginning. That's why in one place the New Testament refers to the devil as the God of this world. If you think about it, that's a, that's a dramatic title to give to someone who isn't God, palpably is not God, not meant to be God. And yet the Bible 
describes him in that language to, to make a big point. He, he has been, it seems, given such incredible clout. He's held sway. He's had huge influence over human affairs to the extent that planet Earth, worldly affairs, they're kind of his affairs. He, he seems to be the god of this world. He seems to be in charge. And you only have to sometimes read the news to, to come to that impression. Because actually, from the very beginning of, of our race, the human race, from the very start of humanity, we have basically abdicated to him. We, we've given over our responsibility, our authority. We've capitulated. That's, that's the story of the very first couple of pages of the Bible. The, the tempter, the serpent, as he's described in the original story, comes to the first man, the first woman, and successfully causes them to abandon their calling as those who are meant to handle authority as guardians of creation on God's behalf. That's what you and me were always intended for. We were meant to be God's ambassadors, God's stewards, God's guardians, ruling over creation, ruling over the world, over the planet, over the garden as it is in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, for him, on behalf of him, faithfully towards him. And yet we ended up yielding to the tempter to the point where effectively he kind of seems to have mastery. He seems to have authority and control because we who were meant to have it handed it over on a plate. We gave away our will, gave away our freedom. And, and as the Bible goes on, it seems that his evil influence has persisted and, and grown more kind of hideous and, and kind of mutated to the point where everybody downstream from the first humans, everybody is tainted with the same failure. Just as a river never rises above its source, so humanity has never on its own risen above its ancestors. Our primal parents who failed their trial, failed their test. And ever since then, so have we. We all have. Even, even the noblest people in the Bible, and there are many heroic, righteous, moral, upstanding men and women... They, all of them, are shown to be morally flawed, somehow susceptible to the devil's persuasion and influence. And, and so are we all, even the people we most admire. I know we could all think of individuals who we might dream of as exceptions. You know, surely you're not talking about this person or that person. You know, the, the great leaders, the great moral crusaders, the great uh, uh, people who fought for good causes. And people we would, for the right reasons, admire. We might put them on a pedestal and think, yeah, the devil couldn't possibly have got influence over that person. But perhaps you've experienced this yourself where you get closer to someone you really admire, and the closer you get to them, the more you start to see their flaws. The more close you get to someone you admire, the more you begin to realize that they're not everything. They're not perfect. They're not complete. They're not pure. And in fact, that, the, the people who we most admire, one of the reasons we do admire them is, is probably because they will be the first ones to admit it. They'll be the first ones to say, yeah, 
I'm just as broken and messed up as you are. In the most crucial ways, I'm just the same as you. And, and that's the human story. Each one of us, however much we might have achieved morally, ethically, we, we will all have to admit. We might, we might find it hard to admit. We do often struggle to admit. We like to imagine that we're, you know, I know I've got a few things in my life that I do really well. You know, we, we, whatever culture we're in, there are a few kind of standard commandments that we are really proud of keeping. Many of us, we're very fond of saying, you know, I would, I would never do that. There are a few, you know, I do a few bad things, but I would never do that. Brighton is full of people who would never do this and never do that. We love that I would never. Whenever I catch myself saying I would never, I stop and think, wait a minute. <laughs> How do I know that? Why am I so sure I would never? But we love that. We live in a culture that, that's pretty confident of its goodness because, well, we consistently recycle. So, you know, we, we're kind of we're pretty impressive. Well, I, 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 I would never lie. I never lie. Never tell lies. Other people do, but I don't. And you know what? This is the thing. The devil, as part of his craft, is prepared to allow you that. This is the thing. You can actually not realize you're playing into his game by holding on to a little piece of morality, a little piece of moral performance, which makes you think that you've sort of arrived in righteousness. He's happy with that. He's like, cool. He's, he's very down with you being, being a performer with one commandment. That's cool. You keep that, that chunk of the city wall, if you like. I'll just have the whole city. So we can be very proud of that chunk of the city wall that's still standing. Look, isn't it excellent? Well, no, not really, because the whole city has been overrun, because the rest of the wall has been broken down. But you've just got that one commandment that you keep. And you don't even keep it as well as you think. The person that says, oh, I've never murdered someone, Jesus comes along and says, you do realize that if you call someone a fool or hate them in your heart, you've murdered them in your heart. So actually, our, our moral performance is still no basis on which to sort of imagine that we've outsmarted, we've been the one that's defeated the devil's power. No, 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 we've all succumbed to him. He's beaten the best of us. He's beaten us, everyone, except for one man. There was one man. There was one man who withstood him. There was one man he could not assail. He couldn't defeat him, however hard he tried. And Matthew has put this story here for us to be filled with hope. In fact, he's put it here for us to be filled with comfort. There is one man who is presented to us in the Bible as an alternative figurehead. There's a new Adam. There's a new humanity. There's a new beginning. There's a new family tree that we can belong to. Because Jesus isn't just presented here as the kind of curve breaker that makes us all feel even worse. That could be one way we'd read it. But how would that be the good news according to Matthew? You know this book that I'm reading to you? The good news according to Matthew. How would it be good news if chapter 4 verses 1 to 11 were just a record of how Jesus... Well, we've all blown it, but he never did. He's just like that annoying kid in the class that always gets good marks. You know that kid where everyone in the class gets bad results in their test. Everyone. 
everyone does. So they can all say, the test was too hard. It was too hard. The test was much too hard. We all deserve to go up several grades, except there's an annoying kid in the class who got an A. This is the one who passed it with flying colors. And so we can't hang on to that excuse because there's that perfect one. Oh, it shows us up for the failures we are. And if you read Matthew's gospel like that, it's not particularly good news, is it? How is that the good news, according to Matthew? Sounds like the very bad news. Sounds like the kick in the teeth, according to Matthew. The rub it in while you're down, according to Matthew. But no, it's the good news. The good news, according to Matthew. Why? Because Jesus didn't have to come to planet Earth to live a perfect life. Jesus didn't have to, to, to live in the desert for 40 days without eating a thing. Why did he do that? What did he have to prove? Nothing of his own. He's the, the, the almighty, eternal, perfect son of God, living an angelic presence. He, he doesn't have to, to do this, not for himself, but he did it for you. He did it, he did it for me. Jesus Jesus defeated the tempter and withstood every attack. And this, by the way, wasn't the last attack. This is just a, a, a sort of a case study. He was under attack all his life. From the cradle to the cross, Jesus was constantly being attacked by the tempter. Constantly. And he never gave in. Not once. Because he loved us. That's why. To provide a new, a new basis for you and me. So that we could give up on our fake righteousness. We could give up on our broken down city walls. <laughs> see them for what they are. And come away from regret. Come away from shabby failure. And find a righteousness that's given. Not our own. It's a gift. It stands secure. So that our story doesn't have to be characterized by just a, a constant kind of tune of regret that might play in your mind. I don't know if you're like that, but, but I think most of us are. In fact, I know most of us. I, I know all of us are. We, we're tempted, at least, to live in regret, right? Keep playing that song in your head. If only I could just go back. If only I could redo the last few years. If only I could redo the last 10. Ever felt like that before? Some of you love to redo your 20s, redo your teens. Maybe you'd like to redo your childhood. The truth is, you, even if you could, imagine if you could redo everything, redo your childhood. It wouldn't ultimately solve the problem because you can't redo what you've inherited from Adam. You can't redo your ancestors. You can't. You'd always be tainted by what you inherit. You'd be downstream from failure. What you need is not just a fresh start, my friend. What you need is, is a, a new figurehead, a new representative, a new identity. And God, in his kindness, has done just this. He's provided a new Adam. He's provided... Someone who conquered when no one else ever could. No one has ever withstood the claims of evil 
but the one who represents you has. So you can, even today, you can actually today exchange your legacy of regret and failure for his legacy of perfection. You can come to him even today, maybe for the first time. Maybe today you could take bread and wine for the first time as a Christian. Today, why don't you do that today? Don't go from this place thinking, yeah, I'm going to try and build up my city walls of righteousness. I'm going to try harder this year. I'm going to try and be a good person. Don't do that. Don't waste your time. Give up on your righteousness. Give it up for what it is. And trade it, exchange it, bring it to him and say, I bring you my failings, my past. I bring it and I exchange it for your perfect record of faithfulness and righteousness. Because you can. You can, you can find, just like the, the New Testament goes on to say in Colossians chapter 3, that your life can be hidden with Christ in God. You, you're given in Jesus Christ, not just a good example. You're given, you're given a hiding place. You're given a refuge. You're given a rock to stand on. You're given a new foundation for your life. Some of us, you, you feel the need of that, right? At this point in your life, you're, you're tumbling around with regret, some of you. You're, you're thinking about this all the time. You're thinking about your failings, your past, your, your record. Think about what am I really going to do with my, what a failure I've been. Some of you, that's a real issue. And for those of you that, that this might not be an issue right now, it will be sometime. But to know you can come to this saviour who says, stand in me, put, put your life in my hands. I'll give you my record. I'll take away your dross and failure. I'll take it to the cross where it's dealt with forever. All of your mess, all of your failure, Jesus deals with it. This is what can happen for you today. It's what it means to be a Christian, hidden in Christ. So this is a huge comfort for us, this, this story. But, but it's not just a comfort for us, it's also training for us. And this is what I want to spend just the last part of this message on. This story here, it is a masterclass. It will teach you and me how we can undergo the seasons of trial and temptation that we each of us have. If we belong to Jesus Christ, especially we'll have seasons of trial and temptation. If you belong to him, you end up being enemies with his enemies. <laughs> you end up not just making friends with Jesus, but making enemies with Satan. Because if he hates Jesus, he'll hate those who belong to Jesus. So if you became a Christian, congratulations, you made an enemy. And so the, the Christian life is characterized by seasons of attack and, and assault. They're seasons of attack and assault from someone who's already been beaten. And you're hidden in the one who has already defeated him. So that's, that's kind of encouraging. <laughs> that gives you some confidence for the four the tussles that you're going to have. But nevertheless, you need training. You need to be prepared for these seasons so that you, you, can, you can come through them. And so we have in this story some, some wisdom, some training for our own needs, for the wilderness times that you go through. You might be surprised to imagine it, but it's true. If you follow Jesus, the wilderness is part of the journey. It's, it's, it's a non-negotiable, but it, it can't be... Avoided. We often like to imagine that it can as Christians. But we need to wise up, grow up and understand. Following Jesus, listen, following Jesus includes seasons of wilderness. 
seasons of wilderness. You need to be prepared. You need to not freak out. Many Christians do. They, they become Christians and then they go through a time of, of surprise, surprise. It's not easy always being a Christian. I'm following Jesus and he's taking me down a tough road. What is this about? Why is this happening? I thought God loved me. I thought you cared about me. Didn't you say so? Isn't that the whole point? And you can freak out and, 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 and completely lose it. But it shows if, if we do lose it, we, we, we've not understood what God is doing through this. See, Satan, according to the Bible, his plan is to tempt Christians to their destruction. He wants to destroy a Christian, destroy their faith, destroy their confidence. God, his plan is to test and train you to your maturity, to your health, to your spiritual fitness. God's will for you is that you enjoy him forever. And here's the thing. You and me left to ourselves are spiritually not fit to enjoy God. We're not actually fit enough. If you want to enjoy God forever, we, we kind of need to put on some spiritual muscle. <laughs> Left to ourselves, we won't really enjoy being with God that much. We need him to change us. So our appetites, our desires, our assumptions and presuppositions, the, the things that are built into the foundation of our lives are spiritually healthy, that we have spiritual muscle, that we're not spiritually flabby. The spiritually flabby will not enjoy heaven. And so God is determined when he helps you to become a Christian to then follow through for the rest of your life in preparing you, training you, helping you to grow spiritual appetites, spiritual muscle. And that means he takes you to the gym. He puts you through stuff that you think, I'd sooner leave that. I don't want that. I like becoming a Christian. I don't like this, though. I don't like the pressure. I don't like the pain. I don't like disappointment and the delay. I don't like difficulty. And God says, you can't really avoid difficulty. In fact, what you'll find is the Holy Spirit, as it says here, will lead you into it. Isn't that weird? Did you notice that verse? The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. What? I thought the Holy Spirit was there to bring us out of the wilderness. I thought the Holy Spirit was there to bring us the feelings, the good feelings, right? Isn't that what he does? He brings the feelings. And here's this thing about him bringing me into the wilderness. What, what is that about? But it's here in the Bible to train you, to help you, to prepare you. That There are times when you'll think, Lord, where are you? What's the Holy Spirit doing? Why is the Holy Spirit not involved in my life right now? And the Holy Spirit is saying, well, I'm actually the one that's brought you here. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm because I determined to train you. I want you to grow, mature. I want you to be steady. I want you to be strong. I want you to be spiritually muscly. Spirit is determined to do that, so he'll use the wilderness. You can't get around it. You've got to go through it. You've got to. You've got to. I'm afraid. And I say this seriously because, honestly, my experience is that the, the 21st century church is just full of restless Christians who've never worked this one out. And so they literally go from church to church to church looking for the atmosphere, I just want the atmosphere. I just want to have the feelings because I've lost them. Where are the feelings gone? Who's seen the feelings? I need the feelings. Are they over there? Or maybe I'll try over here. I'll get the, the feelings are here. Oh, where's the feelings gone? And you're assuming that because the feelings have gone that, that something has fundamentally gone wrong. 
been maybe the, the only thing that's gone wrong is that you've misunderstood the season. The feelings will come back. Don't worry about that. But God's taking you through the wilderness to grow you up. Yeah? He's determined to. So grow up. Respond wisely. Respond like an adult. Think carefully about what he might be doing. Respond wisely in faith. And we get this masterclass here so, so that we get a, a, a smarter idea of how to handle the, this, these sorts of periods of, of trial. And, and notice here, the way that Jesus is put through this temptation as the Holy Spirit takes him into the wilderness, it, it's, it's interesting. When you watch the, the films where the, the hero gets his confrontation or her confrontation with the kind of arch villain. In some films, it's kind of as crass as, you know, they get you know, strapped to a nuclear bomb or they get tied to a table and there's a sort of a laser going up between their legs. And it's like, you just, okay, it's, it's pretty obvious that the, the supervillain is, is sort of torturing or terrifying them. In, in a lot of more powerful films, it's not really as, as sort of basic as that. The real villains, the really, really smart ones, they don't have to tie you to a machine. They just lie to you. You know those stories, like, like some of the, the Sherlock Holmes stories or the, the Lord of the Rings or, or the, the Mission Impossible, where the, the hero has a whole scene or two or a few minutes of the story where there's so much lying going on. There's so much deception that you as the film watcher, you can't even remember what part of the film is true. You, you've kind of lost your grasp of the truth. And the hero is being presented beaten down with this kind of false narrative. That's really how he works, this, this enemy of our souls. He works through false narratives. He comes to you and he brings to you ideas that seem way more plausible than what you've been told by God. He's, he is so good at this. We know that. He's been doing it from the very beginning. It's how he starts. He's the first time he shows up in the Bible, his first phrase of the Bible. Did God say, just asking a question, did God really say that you shouldn't eat the fruit of that tree? By the way, if you do eat the fruit of that tree, you turn into gods. He, he's smart at providing a false narrative, but it seems so persuasive really some of you know exactly what I mean because you've gone through whole seasons of your life where the truth that you believed when you became a Christian or as you got baptized those moments of being persuaded of the certainty you've gone through seasons afterwards weeks months maybe years where you, you've had to hold on with the slenderest thread of faith because you felt you've felt more that it can't be true for whatever reason maybe you've gone through such a season of temptation and trial and you've cried out to God and thought why is it so hard to find him where is he maybe you've had friends or relatives who've who've labored to prove to you that this book is not trustworthy I don't know what you've done maybe you just come across material or frustration frustrations in your life or disappointments that have just just 
cause you to just be so impressed by a kind of false narrative, a counter-narrative. And it's so persuasive. It's so powerful. And what's going on is a battle. The, the devil's trying to attack and destroy. God, God is using it to train, to build muscle, to build strength. So interpret it wisely. And what he does here is, is in three stages. So let's quickly go through them before we finish. He starts with what happens there in verse 3. He says, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If, if you are. You know, I'll just watch. I'll just wait. I've been told that you're the Son of God. And apparently, you know, being God, you can just speak. And things appear, right? I mean, that's, that's how it works. You let there be light, Yeah. So presumably this now, he's being smart because Jesus has not been eating for 40 days. And if you've not eaten for 40 days, what do you want? Carbs. That's what you want. You want carbs. You want to tank up on the carbs. Every stone you look at is a baguette. Every single rock, everything is like big bloomer. That is what it is. That's, that's tiger bread. That's, that, that, that's, that's rye bread. No, it's not. It's rocks. Everything. And then Satan comes along and says, well, it can be bread, can't it? can be. And what's he really saying? He's saying this. Listen, we know, don't we, what will please you. You and me. Because we know. We know what will make you happy. Your father, he doesn't have a clue what will make you happy. He can't please you. That's what he's saying. You ever had that? You people who follow Jesus, you ever had that moment? You have it every day. Where you're told, the thing that will please you is sin. The thing that will please you is the thing you're not meant to have. Because your father doesn't like you and doesn't understand you like I do. He's determined to not let you have it. It's, it's that horrible feeling that God doesn't really know what will make you happy. He doesn't know. And if he did know, he wouldn't want you to have it. He doesn't, he's not interested in your happiness. He may be interested in your holiness, but he can't make you happy. He can't please you. You ever felt this? Some of you, this is huge. Because you've understood that following Jesus means there are certain pleasures that you've got to resist. You've got to deny yourself. You, you know this. You know that it means following Jesus means that I'm not going to get to sleep around. I'm, I'm not going to have sex with someone who's not my, my husband or wife. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be only sexually active in, it, in the, the covenant marriage relationship. Is that going to please you? I think we both know what really makes you happy. This God of yours, he doesn't know you like I do. I know what makes you happy. Why don't you click on that website? I know what makes you We both know really that's what you want. That's what you really want. Come on. That's what you want. Because it seems so much more real, doesn't it, than... than Resisting it for the sake of holiness, that's not going to make me happy. It's a false narrative. It's a powerful one. So powerful. For some of you, this will mean not getting married. Because the only people that you 
could marry are people who don't love Jesus. The people you get closest to marrying, they say to you, well, I'm not going to become a Christian, but I'd love to marry you. Wow. That's, what, what is, why, would, why would God put me through Why would he put me through that wilderness? It seems that for some people, that's the very thing. God will put some of you through that. And in your heart at that point, the, the issue at stake is, do I trust the Bible? Do I trust him when he says in Psalm 16, at your right hand are pleasures evermore? Because the person that denies himself even marriage because they only want what Jesus wants in their life is going to have to trust that in the end they are no fool. In the end, they're making the best decision. In the end, it's not a sacrifice. In the end, there is a God who knows them better than they know themselves and knows the only thing that will truly satisfy them and is prepared to give them that enduring satisfaction for eternity. That's the promise I've got to believe. If I can't believe that, I can't do it. I can't. I can't make that sacrifice unless I know in my heart that he's better He's better than turning stones into bread. He's better than instant gratification. He is. He's better. Better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. No good thing does the Lord withhold from him whose walk is blameless. He knows what I want. Some of you have let go of relationships and you've been through seasons afterwards where you thought... God, you better be good enough for this. <laughs> you, you've prayed like that. You said, God, you better know what you're doing. You better be worth this. Because you feel like nothing could be worth this. You've just let go of the, the one thing that will give you pleasure in this life. As far as you're convinced. Uh, the one thing. And you're wrong. Because at his right hand are pleasures evermore. He, he knows how to please and satisfy. Jesus makes that decision in his heart. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's he saying? He's saying, yeah, I could turn stones into bread and I would exist. I need bread, obviously, to stay alive. I'm biology. I've got, I've got to eat something, but I don't just want to exist or stay alive. I want to live. <laughs> I want to live I want to have life in all its fullness. And where do I get life? Just from bread? No, I get life from him. He is enough to satisfy. I've got to believe that. I've got to believe it. I know, friends, sometimes it's very hard to believe that. I know it really is. It's easy to preach it, sometimes hard to believe it. I know, but friends, honestly, this is why this is in the Bible, to remind us we're not alone. He went through every temptation. He went through the worst of it and he came through and he said, come with me, follow me, come on my path. I'll show you how to beat this one. I'll show you how to win. Trust my father, trust him. He's good for it. He's good for it. You'll find this for yourself. Second temptation quickly. So it's there in verse five and six. The devil took him to a holy city, sent him on the holy city, sent him on a, on a pinnacle of the temple, said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. So he's coming back again with this. If you're the son of God, notice that he's attacking his identity. He's attacking. 
just after he's been baptized. Do you remember last week, Tim would have spoken if you were here for that, when the voice from heaven comes from the Father, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved son. Those are the very words that Satan wants to attack. The thing that you've been most blessed by, sustained by, edified by, strengthened by, held up by for the rest of your life. Some of the things you hear in a meeting or when you get baptized or when someone prays for you or someone writes it in a note for you or it's something you read in the Bible, you think, I will never forget this. This will stay, this will go through my life like a stick of rock. I'm so convinced, I'm so persuaded, I'm sure of these things, I'm so strong in my faith. Trust me, that will be tested. That will, maybe within days. I make it a habit of writing to everyone who gets baptized in this church quickly afterwards just to encourage them, just to help them. Maybe a few weeks later just to say, just, just keep trusting, keep trusting. Because not long after you're baptized, it's quite possible that you just not, I'm not saying it happens to everyone, but it's quite possible. You just feel a little bit like, wow, it's feeling hard again. Because it will, sometimes. Because he'll attack your identity. But look at, look at what he says. He says, throw yourself down from here and he will command his angels. He will, he will see to it that you get looked after. What's he saying here? What's he doing in this, in this verse here? What he's doing is he's saying, okay, treat God your heavenly father like a machine. Treat him, in fact, like your servant. So he takes Psalm 91 this precious psalm, which is a humble statement of childlike trust and worship. He takes this very psalm and he turns it into a lawyer's contract. That's what Satan does with the Bible. Do you know that Satan knows the Bible? Do you know that Satan knows the Bible better than you? Which, by the way, suggests it's time to get to know your Bible. Yeah? What does Jesus do? In all three, in all three battles... He uses the Bible. It is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus constantly comes back with a Bible. He doesn't say, well, that's an interesting point of view, but I think this. No. Jesus says, no, no, it's written. It's, I've got it here. It's written. It's written. Jesus gets into the Bible. Are you getting into the Bible? If you want to defeat Satan, learn to read. I'm being serious. Learn to take this book seriously. If you want to flourish spiritually. You need to dig into this. That's what Jesus did. So we've got to do the same, right? What does Jesus do? He, he actually quotes the Bible better. Satan tries to use the Bible as a contract. Jesus knows that's not what it's for. The promises in the Bible are not given so that we can kind of health and safety God into doing something. You throw yourself off this high point and God will have to catch you. It's in the contract. That's not how it works at all. Some of you have noticed that. Very sadly in my life I've noticed that God doesn't seem to feel the obligation to answer my prayers exactly as I want them when I want them. He doesn't. And very often I've used that as a reason to be angry with him. Because I'm, I'm fond of, of testing him, putting him to the test. God, if you really love me, you will do this for me right now. Right now, you will. You'll do it for me right now. If you really love me, you would. You ever prayed like that? As if God's like, oh, no. Oh, I'm so sorry, man. Mate, I'm really, mate, I'm really sorry. I can't come through for you. I'm so busy. I've got angels messing around up here. I can't. As if God's like my servant. It's like, as if I can manipulate him. 
And that is what we've done all along. We do this. There's a story of it. A whole, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where the whole of Israel, Jesus is the new faithful Israel. He's the one that's done what Israel couldn't do, just like he's doing what Adam couldn't do. Israel in the wilderness, having been delivered from slavery by God giving 10 plagues to Pharaoh and wasting Pharaoh's army under the sea and splitting the ocean so that Israel could walk out of slavery into freedom. No generation in the history of humanity had better proof of God's powerful faithfulness. And within days, they are complaining. Within days, they are saying, you don't really like us. Because, well, you've not given us the food that we want. I don't like this food. I don't like this water. You can't be trusted. That might sound like a joke. You might say, well, I would never do like that. Remember what we said. I would never is a bad place to start. Because, friends, this is humanity that's being described. This is us. We tend to think, because, God, you're not showing up in this situation, you're not showing up at all. And God's saying, lift up your head, look around you. Look at all the other proofs and demonstrations of my faithfulness. Stop reducing my faithfulness to this party trick that you need me to do right now. Have a, have a look at what I have done. Have a look at the cross. Have a look at my faithfulness. Have a look at my kindness. Have a look at my consistent record of generous mercy in your life. Come back to it. Come back to it. See it again. And, and st start there. By all means, keep asking me. Keep pressing in. Keep arguing with me. He's not against that, friends. But I tell you, we are not to put the Lord to the test. We're not to imagine that he's at our beck and call. It's not that way around. The third and final thing. Satan says to him, all right. Takes him to, to see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, verse 8. And he says, all right, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So this is really, really smart because what he's doing is he's getting, he's getting inside Jesus' head because he knows that Jesus has in fact been promised all the kingdoms, all the nations of the world and their glory. That's the very thing he's come for. Jesus came to the world to win for himself the, the devotion, the worship, the faithful, loyal devotion of a global people called the church. That's why he came. He came for a bride. He came to die for her. He came for me and you. And he's, he's committed to getting that prize He's working through history to win all the time. It's happening right now all over the world. Tens of thousands every day becoming Christians all over the world because Jesus is still winning, winning a global, global, glorious people. That's why he came. He did it through death. Did it through shame. Did it through suffering. Terrible suffering. And Satan says to him, I'll give you all the things you've come for, painless, suffering free, I'll give it all to you, just like that. I can give it to you. I'm the God of this world, remember? I can give it to you. Jesus sees through it because he knows you're not the God of this world. You were never meant to be. You stole this world. 
I'm stealing it back. You're not having it. Jesus, and this is where he gets strong with Satan. You notice, be gone, Satan. <laughs> he gets passionate. Be gone. I've had an, I'm not going, we are not going to avoid the cross. I will go through the cross for these people. I'll go through everything for them. Why is this important? Because each one of you will have ambitions. You might think, well, does God let you have ambitions? You bet he does. God wants you to have ambitions. He wants to have great amb- He wants you to have great ambitions, friends. He wants you to plan and start dreams and start hoping and praying for great things in your life. But here's the thing. There'll be times where to see those ambitions fulfilled, you will be tempted to cut and run. You'll be tempted to make it happen. You'll be tempted to do something that you know is wrong, but it will get you there quickly. It will get you there cheaply. It will get you there pain-free. And you need to follow Jesus here. Now, that's not yours to give me, Satan. My Father will get me there. If you've got promises from God, if you've got hopes and dreams for God to use you in this life, you've got to trust him to see those dreams fulfilled. You've got to. You've got to. You can't make them happen. If you try to, it won't work. Jesus knew that. So we've got to not yield to that lie, but trust in his faithfulness. We know he's faithful. He died for us. We know that he only means our good. He's trustworthy. He couldn't be more good. We're going to celebrate him as we come to the table, take bread and wine. We're going to sing our songs of worship. We're going to confess again our trust and confidence in in his total faithfulness, whatever we're going through. Let's, Let's do that right now. Shall we stand? Father, we thank you for this bread and this wine. We thank you for what it means to us. We thank you for your son, for his body and blood. We take it to our our mouths, to our bodies, and we take your son, the Lord Jesus, to our lives. We trust in him. We stand in him. We don't build our lives on our righteousness. Lord, nor do we imagine that we can weather out the storm of trial and temptation by our own strength. So we say, come Holy Spirit, even as we worship and meet with us. Strengthen weak knees. Restore promises to our hearts. Give us courage and faith, each one for the fight that we endure. I pray especially right now for some who are right in the middle of the wilderness. And I pray, would you please come alongside them, Holy Spirit. Speak words of comfort and encouragement in Jesus' name. Amen.